Stay tuned to acure.org for the latest updates on the world's only conference dedicated to cardiac unloading and heart recovery. acure.org. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to Heart Sounds for September 2023. I am your host, Shelley Wood, and this is the podcast where I tell you about some of TCTMD's top stories of the month and let you listen in on a few of the interviews the TCTMD reporters did while pulling together the news. I hope you caught last month's podcast recorded on the last day of the European Society of Cardiology Congress. I got to sit down with ESC President Franz Weidinger to hear some of his favorite trials and moments from the meeting. This month I am returning to our regular format to highlight some of the topics we tackled in print over the past few weeks. Let's get started. Among our most clicked stories of September was Laura McEwen's deeper dive into the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which aims to reduce prescription drug costs for Medicare beneficiaries in the United States. The plan is for up to 60 drugs covered under Medicare Part D and Part B to be up for price negotiations over the next four years, with as many as 20 drugs added to the list every year thereafter. For now, the Biden-Harris administration announced the first 10 drugs for which Medicare will be allowed to negotiate prices beginning in 2026. Half of that list, as Laura reported, are medications that cardiologists commonly prescribe, including two NOACs, apixaban and rivaroxaban, and three heart failure drugs, secubitril-valsartan, dapagliflozin, and empagliflozin. There is optimism about this move because, particularly for heart failure patients needing four-pillar therapy, costs are truly prohibitive for many and involve a lot of advocacy and paperwork on the part of physicians. Laura spoke with Mary Noreen Walsh of Ascension St. Vincent Heart Center in Indianapolis and a past president of the American College of Cardiology to hear her thoughts on the news. It's not uncommon, especially as a heart failure specialist, to have patients on at least three of those medications. So I was happy to hear the list, but I think that we have to be kind of conservative in our expectations because the cost impact is very much unknown as of yet. There are many questions about how and where negotiated prices will be applied and then how will that actually trickle down to the patient's out-of-pocket costs. So Mm -hmm. there's a a lot unknown. It's too early to tell. And I, I guess the other thing is, even though these, I guess, are to be implemented, the new prices will be announced on September 1st, stated, but the, it won't go into effect until January 1st, 2026. That's mm-hmm. a long time to wait. Right. For especially if you're, I mean, if you're a patient who's just heard this news, you're, you're initially excited and then, oh. Right. So, so it, yeah, encouraging, it's a good step forward, but we don't know how it's going to impact our patients as yet. Earlier this month, the British Journal of Surgery published the results of an explosive survey conducted across the surgical workforce in the United Kingdom. Of the more than 1,400 individuals who responded to the survey, nearly 90% of women and more than 80% of men reported they had personally witnessed sexual harassment in some form, and almost 36% of women and 17% of men had witnessed sexual assault. Worse, two-thirds of women had been the specific target of sexual harassment, and nearly 29% had been victims of assault, including rape. Those figures for men were far lower, but not zero. 
I decided to cover this paper despite the fact that cardiothoracic surgeons made up fewer than 2% of the surgeons or trainees who responded. Christopher Begany of Exeter University, the lead author on this study, told me it wouldn't be ethical to desegregate the data to look at subspecialty groups, but that he thought delving into this across different medical specialties was important and hoped the National Health Service or the General Medical Council would invest in this kind of work. I put the question to one of the journal editors, Malin Sund, of Umeå University, Sweden, who told me she could only speculate, but that she suspects other areas of medicine that have an ingrained hierarchical structure and where men make up the majority of the subspecialty, women likely face similar hazards at work. For this story, I also spoke with Pamela Douglas, who last year led the American College of Cardiology's Health Policy Statement on Building Respect, Civility, and Inclusion in the Cardiovascular Workplace. I asked Dr. Douglas whether a survey in cardiology might turn up similar numbers. We don't have data in uh, cardiology much beyond harassment. We don't have, you know, the very explicit questions they had about, you know, violating personal space and unwanted touching, dating, you know, all those kinds of things. So we don't have data on that in cardiology. I would guess that it does happen. Uh, There certainly have been some high-profile cases of this amongst trainees in the last five to ten years. I can't at all say whether the incidence is the same, whether it's just as bad, whether it's a little less frequent, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't something happening. You know, we have done surveys every year for 20 years about harassment uh, amongst women cardiologists, and it is between 65 and 75% since the mid-1990s. And do I know whether people are getting, you know, the more severe physical kinds of harassment? No, but I would assume that with that proportion of uncivil behavior, that there is some really egregious behavior as a small amount that people experience in cardiology as well. Mm-hmm. And it's important to mention that, you know, men also experience this, but at a much lower level. So, you know, 20, 25% of men cardiologists report harassment. Yael Maxwell is back from family leave this month, and we at TCTMD are very happy to have her. She covered a paper in the September 19th issue of Jack by Fatima Rodriguez and colleagues at Stanford University, who conducted a retrospective review of non-gated chest CT scans at their institution for non-cardiac purposes. They found that just over half of patients were found to have coronary artery calcium scores greater than zero, and one-third had CAC scores of 100 or higher. Of those meeting the cutoff for worrisome calcium levels, just one-quarter were already taking a statin. A unique feature of this study was the use of an artificial intelligence-enabled algorithm to calculate the coronary calcium levels. Yael spoke with Dr. Rodriguez, who called it a perfect example of how AI can help in clinical practice, noting that closer collaboration between lung and cardiovascular programs would be ideal for picking up relevant coronary calcium from lung CT. Most of the patients in this study were undergoing chest scans for lung cancer, for example. That raises questions of when and how patients should be told about other incidental disease picked up on these scans, she noted. Yael reached out to Matthew Budoff at Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Torrance, California, 
for his take on the study. I think it's enlightening or a nice to see that uh, we can identify incidental coronary calcium and be able to hopefully not only predict future events, but use that as an opportunity to intervene in the future. I think the surprising findings here were the percentage of people with high calcium scores above mm-hmm. 100. I thought that was uh, more than maybe you might expect from a group that's not being referred for heart disease evaluation or yeah. screening for heart disease. And then the other value, which was a little disheartening, was the low use of statins in that population. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a call to action for radiology to say when you're reading a lung CT, you need to report incidental coronary calcium. I don't know if we need to quantify it, but at least report that it's present, maybe at least mild, moderate, or severe, Okay. to give the opportunity for doctors and patients to act on, on this incidental finding. Do you think that should be done across the board, or are there certain patients and maybe whom that should not be done? No, I, I think it should be done across the board. I don't see any detriment to, to telling a patient or, or a doctor that the patient has a severe atherosclerosis as an incidental finding. Mm-hmm. And the doctor can say, you know, I already knew that. I don't need to act on it. Or, you know, they had a bypass surgery already. That's expected. But I don't think you want to disempower anybody because not only does coronary calcium identify the patient who might need additional therapy, mm-hmm. things like aspirin, lifestyle changes, and statins, it also is a great motivator for patients' behavior. So if patients are told you have atherosclerosis, they become better patients and are more proactive in their own health. Somehow, and I'm going to blame the pandemic here, it has been six years since we saw the eagerly awaited results of both the MITRA-FR and COAPT trials, each delivering different results for the MITRA-CLIP and functional MR. Now a large post-approval study provides reassurances that transcatheter edge-to-edge repair is indeed helping to improve outcomes in secondary mitral regurgitation. But it also indicates that patients getting tier procedures don't necessarily mirror the types of patients treated in the pivotal trials. This month, a new analysis of the 5,000 patients in the COAPT post-approval study was published in JAK. At one year, one-third of these patients had died or been hospitalized for heart failure, but treatment with mitraclip did lead to a durable reduction in MR at one year. Most demonstrated large improvements in quality of life as well. Additional analyses broke out patients according to whether they would have met the enrollment criteria for COAPT and MITRA-FR and analyzed results for those groups separately. Just 991 out of those 5,000 patients were COAPT similar patients, and in these, all-cause mortality and heart failure hospitalization occurred in 30.8%. That's similar to what was seen in tear-treated patients in the COAPT trial and significantly lower than those of patients who received GDMT in the randomized trial. Slightly fewer, 917 patients, match the types of patients enrolled in MITRA-FR. Of these, 43.6% had died or were hospitalized for heart failure at one year, numerically lower than that observed in the MITRA-FR randomized trial, which was 54.6%. And that difference was driven by a larger observed reduction in heart failure hospitalizations. What is most striking, perhaps, at least in the opinion of lead investigator Kashish Goel of Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, 
is that these real-world patients were sicker than those in the trials. They had more comorbidities, more severe heart failure, more functional limitations, and roughly half had features of primary MR as well, not pure secondary MR. Notably, they were also less likely to have received guideline-directed medical therapy prior to clip repair, a point Mike asked about when he spoke with Nathan Mutin of Hôpital Cardiovasculaire Louis Pradel in Lyon, France. Here is part of their conversation. When you look at the real-world data now, what's happening is what people said would happen, is that these patients really aren't managed very well. A lot of these patients weren't on optimal guideline-recommended therapy in the post-approval study. So it's, I wouldn't call it indication creep, but it doesn't seem like physicians are trying the medical therapy as much as they should be in the real world. Exactly, Michael. You're hitting a point here. It looks like to me sometimes that heart failure specialists have simplified the question in America and reduce it to a simple question of treating the mitral regurg while not treating as good the ventricle with the four therapy applied properly. That might be related to the device being made by an American company versus, for instance, SGLT2 being provided by uh, European companies. That could be an explanation. In, in France, we are blessed because the health insurance covers the costs for the four therapies and also for the mitral regurg. But in my bias, if you treat properly a half a patient with reduced ejection fraction with a mitral regurg, if you treat him properly, then it will be exceptional cases where there'll be a remaining significant mitral regurg. And in this case, you should also ask the question of an advanced heart failure and left ventricle assist devices. For primary MR patients, it is a whole different business. And for primary MR, the mitral clip, especially for those who are not candidates to surgery, is an efficient solution. Both Caitlin Cox and Todd Neal were taking some much-deserved vacation time while I was pulling together this month's podcast, but you'll be hearing from them again in the months to come. I like to think Todd Neal will have at least a pang of regret about his timing, because for a while now, Todd has been reporting on the rising wrath of cardiologists against the American Board of Internal Medicine's maintenance of certification. For more than a decade, cardiologists have been railing against this process, calling it time-consuming and expensive, so much so that an alternative certifying body, the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, was created back in 2015. This week, while Todd was on holiday and hopefully ignoring the cardiology news cycle, the ACC, along with the Heart Failure Society of America, the Heart Rhythm Society, and the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, announced that they were joining forces to apply to the American Board of Medical Specialties for an independent cardiovascular board separate from the ABIM. With Todd out, Michael O'Reardon pulled together a quick story for TCTMD, then sought replies from some of the voices that have been complaining the loudest about the current system. I hope you'll check out our story from September 21st, and we'll bring you more details as we learn more over the coming weeks and months. For a taste of some of the reactions we're hearing to this cardiovascular board plan, here is Edward J. Schloss of the Christ Hospital in Cincinnati. What we have with the ABIM is just not should not continue. It it doesn't represent the interests of physicians. It's not been shown to be beneficial to our patients. It's burdensome. It is roundly detested Mm -hmm. um, by ethical 
high-quality physicians. And ABIM has had a deaf ear to this, despite significant amount of political legal pressure and has steadfastly held on to their control for many years. They've made some tweaks in their, in their program, uh, but they haven't affected the, the, the fundamentals um, problems that we have with it, which, you know, what I would say is probably the, the biggest fundamental problem is that they're not accountable. Um, mm-hmm. They're a private organization that has somehow obtained a, a significant amount of power with no elected board and essentially uh, applies a tax to physicians, uh, not just economic, but significant time constraints with, with zero representation from us and zero demonstration of any real quality. What we currently have is has to go. And what we have coming is at least a promise that we'll have better representation. That is it for Heart Sounds for September 2023. Heading into October, we will have journalists at the European Association for Cardiothoracic Surgery meeting in Vienna, as well as Viva in Las Vegas. And most of the team will be converging on the TCT meeting in San Francisco. If you will be attending any of those conferences, for sure reach out and tell me what you're looking forward to seeing or speaking about. Thank you to all the TCTMD reporters for sharing your audio with me for this podcast. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to Heart Sounds. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rock's Heart Radio with Dr. Roxanna Moran. All new episodes are available on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud.